Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. If it's your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945, and it just so happens that we have America's premier national security expert, Bill Arkin. He's joining us to discuss the way in which the world of war has changed since those period of world wars. Back then, it was all about national mobilization for total wars. The fact that you deployed thousands and thousands of your best and brightest and youngest on the front lines and you mobilize your national industry to win these wars of survival. But war has changed since then. We're ever more detached from those who fight on frontline wars. We have smaller volunteer armies and increasingly high-tech militaries. Bill is the exact person we need to take us through this transition in the history of war. He served in army intelligence during the Cold War. He was at the Washington Post working on top-secret America. And he's written over a dozen books on war, politics, and security. In fact, he's got a new book. The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. So if you like the book, then buy it. If you like the podcast, then like, follow, and share with anyone and everyone who will listen. You can also follow us online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But now, here's the amazing William Arkin with The History of Our Endless Wars. Bill, thanks so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on. I'm great. I'm in Southern California, not in Denmark. Oh, well, I don't know what you're insinuating there, Bill, because, I mean, the weather's absolutely, um, uh, it's atrocious. Yeah, the, <laughs> the weather's not good. How's everything for you over there? Well, it's Southern California. What can I say? You need say no more. We are all incredibly jealous. But it is great to have you on the podcast, especially as I heard you give that fantastic talk on perpetual endless warfare and the illusion of perfect warfare when you came to deliver the keynote here in Denmark. So actually, let's start there. What is this idea of perfect war and how does it differ to these notions of total warfare that defined the 1910s right through to the 1940s? Well, we know that after World War II, there was a transformation from an era of total war to something else. 
And through the Korean War, obviously, we saw the remnants of World War II style warfare, but then Vietnam really changed everything, transformed the whole idea of the way in which armies positioned themselves on the ground in a different way. There was no real front and there was no real congregation of army versus army. It became much more of a guerrilla conflict. And ironically, if you use the Vietnam model, it's pretty much what we fight today. There's really no place on earth right at this moment where there is a front. Now, that's not to say that during the 2003 Gulf War, there wasn't one. There was. The U.S. congregated against the Iraqi army, blah, blah, blah. But even there, what really made that war different than World War II was the impact of air power. And I mean air power in all of its manifestations. I don't just mean airplanes. I mean airplanes, I mean drones, I mean the modern intelligence and space systems, I mean networking, etc. All of what is modern about warfare that isn't the traditional ground warfare of the World War II and World War I era. You see, that's a fascinating take. So what is it about this current era of conflict that is so different? What is it that changes in that time period that makes war so fundamentally altered compared to that previous period? On a macro level, the answer is simple. Geography has been eliminated. Distance has been eliminated. So worldwide intercontinental strikes, even with conventional weapons, are now viable. Whether that be a drone that's being flown from around the planet or it be B-52 or B-1 or B-2 bombers delivering conventional weapons. Even the Russians are doing the same thing in Syria, using their bombers to deliver conventional weapons. So geography on a macro level is no longer important. It's not to say that once you get down into a city, get into a slog, fight a firefight or do special operations that geography isn't geography and immutable and the same as always. But at the strategic level, at the operational level of war, you can basically say that air power has eliminated the tyranny of geography. And that allows, let's just use the 2003 Gulf War as an example, it allows air power to essentially range in front of and well in front of a land army, picking apart and destroying the enemy's defenses uh, long before the land army reaches those defenses. And that exactly is what happened in the Iraq War in 2003. The third division, the army division that was famous in World War I because it was the Rock of the Marne defending Paris, famous in World War II because it fought on every European front, was the premier division that was attacking Baghdad. They moved up through the Syrian western desert and then crossed the Euphrates River about 60 miles south of Baghdad, where they then approached the Iraqi defenders. On March 25th, which was six days after they left Kuwait, there was this god-awful sandstorm. I'm sure you remember the pictures of it. It was just unbelievable. It was biblical in nature. And the entire ground army really ground to a halt because they couldn't move. But all during the next three days, as they were halted, air power continued to bomb the Iraqis through the weather, all weather, they call it and utilizing new methods of imagery, 
not electro-optical pictures, but spectral imagery, synthetic aperture radar and other kinds of imagery that allowed them to literally see the enemy through the weather. And in this sandstorm, B-1 bombers just decimated the Iraqis so that when it was over and the 3rd Division crossed the Euphrates River, the Iraqis were already defeated, and that's when they made their thunder run to Baghdad and reached Saddam International Airport in like two days. So we say, oh my God, the 3rd Division was so fantastic, but the truth of the matter is that everything was facilitated by air power, and I think that the Iraqis fundamentally didn't understand American military culture or the technology associated with the advancements that had taken place since 1991 because they were just sitting there on the ground waiting to have a grinding conventional war. And it never came. It never came. It never came because of air power. And so, look, we can say a lot of negative things about air power, and people do. And certainly I would say people who are more oriented towards ground warfare, which is, of course, the majority of those in the military, whether they be Army or Marine Corps, they tend to not really understand how significant air power is and and how it influences what they're capable of doing. And now we see even that ground forces are emulating air forces in a way acquiring more and more drones, which allows them to go out further and further, and acquiring new weaponry like HIMARS, which is a variant of the MLRS multiple rocket launcher, which gives them a range of 100 kilometers. And that really is so much further than one conceives of when one thinks of the old battlefield geometry of a division maybe being able to shoot 10 miles or so in front of itself. So now armies are looking more like air forces with attack helicopters, with uh, HIMARS and MLRS and ATACMs and with drones. And I think that those advancements are just going to continue. I'm not saying that there's going to be necessarily a merging of the two, but I think that Even though the army might not understand the air power era, the truth of the matter is that they are becoming more and more like air power in the sense that they are incredibly dependent upon this worldwide intelligence and command network, the sensing and seeing and commanding network. And I think that we'll never go back. We'll never go back, not even in a war with China or Russia or any kind of conflict that we posit as being the challenges ahead. Cool. Imagine if you'd said that to an army general back in 1917, that it's almost like the army is down the second run of the ladder to the U.S. Air Force, because those debates back then, you'd have had the U.S. Army Air Service. It was about helping the army at this point in time, but we've had a big change since since then. But a change that perhaps began back in 1917, like you say, in reaction to the horror and the bloody trenches, the muddy trenches of the First World War, because it was at this point in U.S. air power strategy, a really fledgling U.S. air power strategy, that they came up with this idea of going over and not through the enemy. 
The idea that you wouldn't have to fight on the muddy battlefields that are waterlogged because of the weather that you so importantly point out. Instead, you can bomb their cities and you can kill the will of the enemy and their fighting capacity without ever having to hit them on the battlefield. But do we really only realise this in 2003 with that war in Iraq? Or was this not something that was realised earlier in the first Gulf War? It wasn't realised in the first Gulf War because it was so anomalous and also the first Gulf War 1991 took place in the seam between our paper world and our digital world. So we weren't really able to take advantage of the digital world in 1991. We really have to remind ourselves that even printing out the air tasking order, which was like a thousand pages long, necessitated them moving it on a disc by airplane to bring it to the units that needed it so that they could then print it out. That was the logistical nightmare of just being able to see what the orders were because people didn't have big enough computers to be able to just digest their portion of it. So 1991 really wasn't the turning point. 1999 was the turning point, the war in Kosovo. And here, one bomb created the modern era, the JDAM, the Joint Direct Attack Munition. And why? Because all through history, up until the point of 1999, to deliver a bomb required eyeballs on the target. Whether those were human eyeballs delivering an explosive from a balloon in World War I or from a small plane in World War II or the thousands of bombers that flew all the way through Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, as laser-guided bombs and electro-optical bombs were developed, where it was still necessary for the attacking airplane to, quote, see the target. That is, that the television had to see the target, that the laser had to spot the target, that something had to direct the bomb to the target. And the interference of weather, the interference of enemy jamming, the interference of deception, all made that process difficult. And that's the story that most people think of when they think of air power, how many times they weren't able to hit the target. And then in 1999, we came along with a new weapon, JDAM, and its guidance system is GPS satellite guided. That means if I give the bomb a set of coordinates anywhere on the planet and deliver the bomb in the air above that set of coordinates, even from a bus, that bomb is able to seek out and find those coordinates and hit it. And in, in Yugoslavia in 1999, it had a CEP of about 30 feet. By the time 2003 came along, that CEP had been improved to less than 10 feet. And so all of a sudden you had the ability to deliver an enormous amount of ordnance without regard for weather, enemy countermeasures, or indeed overflying the target. And so that's why you saw such an increase in the use of B-1s and B-52 bombers, because you could load those things up with 50 plus JDAMs and they could go out and destroy 50 different targets. 
So really then the challenge became getting good coordinates and getting good targets on those coordinates. And so the entire real method of warfare shifted to finding the target. And that's why today, whether it be a special ops guy lurking around in the mountains of Afghanistan, or it be a drone flying over Pakistan, or somebody operating in Iraq or Syria, the truth of the matter is that for every one soldier, for every one pilot actually doing the killing, there are literally tens of thousands of people in the back end who are making the maps, who are improving the maps, who are characterizing the enemy as located and finding targets, finding suitable targets. If anything, these days in warfare, that's the challenge. The challenge is actually coming up with suitable and meaningful, meaningful targets that can match the military capacity of the United States. You see, I've heard these promises before. It reminds me of the Second World War and the idea of precision bombing doctrine. And I remember these generals saying that they can get a bomb in a pickle barrel from 20,000 feet. But that was fine during pre-war tests and imperfect weather conditions. But when the fog of war kicked in, they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn door. In fact, they couldn't hit the biggest marshalling yard in Europe, in ruined Sotteville. So is war really as perfect as it sounds today? Well, okay, so I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying the technology has changed. And it's not just changed, it's transformed. And it is transformative. The question, as is always, is what's the correct strategy to use in fighting? And also, what is it that you're bombing? And then what is it that you're trying to achieve? All the same questions, right? In World War II, it was a debate as to whether or not destroying the war-making capacity of Nazi Germany was actually going to halt the German army or not. Do you attack the army directly? Do you attack the rear area? Or in the case of World War II, do you attack the people? And so these are profound strategy questions which still exist today. We might not ever undertake a firebombing attack again in the modern era But the truth of the matter is that civilian casualty considerations and the morale of the enemy population is still very relevant in terms of operational and strategic strategy. So the fact that we have transformed into, let's just say, a pickle barrel era where we are able to hit a target with pretty high degree of reliability under all weather conditions... Now, I can talk a little bit about some of the challenges that might appear in the future. GPS jamming is an example, or space warfare where intelligence and networking capabilities are disabled. In other words, do we return to the paper era as a result of total war in which the United States versus, say, China or Russia are knocking out each other's satellites and destroying each other's networks. And then we're back to the grease pencil and we're back to actually having to see the target. I don't know the answer to that question. And I think that clearly that's where we see so much investment in cyber warfare and so much investment even in space in the United States. 
but it's an investment and a kind of promotionism where I don't think that what's behind it is a full understanding of the technological moment. And the technological moment is that now we are too good and that being so good at what it is that we're able to do really puts us on a treadmill of perpetual warfare where killing target after target after target every day doesn't really accrue the strategic effect that we hope it's going to accrue. So we're in this crazy period where we have reached perfection in doing this one thing, destroying the target, but it's not necessarily helping us to win the war. It's not necessarily helping us to destroy the enemy or deplete the enemy in a way that it would be meaningful. Now, some, you know, your traditionalists, I guess I would call them in the military, would say, and God, I'm so bored when I hear this, well, the only way you can defeat the enemy is by occupying their territory. And it's an old bromide. It doesn't apply anymore. Look what happened when we occupied territory in Iraq and Afghanistan. We didn't defeat the enemy. We just stuck our hand in a hornet's nest. And part of why we didn't defeat the enemy is that we weren't willing to deploy a sufficient number of soldiers on the ground to actually pacify this population. And why weren't we willing to do so? Because even as we have improved our technology, the size of the army and the size of the Marine Corps has significantly declined. And we just do not have either the manpower nor the stomach to deploy that kind of a force. I tried to do the calculation in my book, The Generals Have No Clothes, as to what that actually meant on the ground in Afghanistan. And I think over this 20-year period of warfare from 2001 to now, the United States military has deployed a total of 2.7 million soldiers in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq, rotational force over that 20-year period. And at no time, at no time during that 20-year period, were there more than 160,000 soldiers on the ground. Now, if you take kind of a standard 10 to 1 ratio of support to fighters, the tail to tooth ratio turned around, that means that at no time did the United States have more than 16,000 fighters on the ground, real fighters, people who are actually outside the perimeters of the bases, doing the trigger pulling, doing the actual killing. So we have not really ever deployed a sufficient size of force to be able to defeat these countries. And I could go on more about the geography of the 2003 invasion, because part of winning from the South and part of winning so fast, 21 days from Kuwait to Baghdad, was that the vast majority of Saddam's Republican guards 
which were deployed inside the perimeters of Baghdad city itself or in the north, were never destroyed. And so when the war was over, when Saddam abandoned Baghdad and the Iraqi government and military dissolved into thin air, all of those soldiers were still out there. They were still a potent force. They became the center of the insurgency. And if you remember from about 2003 until 2008 or so, uh, that was a very potent insurgency. And it was facilitated by the fact that we never destroyed the Iraqi military because of the geography of our invasion and advance. So did we not understand that we were going to win so fast? Did we have visions of Rome and Paris and being greeted as victorious liberators? Who knows? But the truth of the matter is that what we didn't understand, what's still relevant today, is how much technology facilitated this quick victory and then what the price was we paid for how quick it was. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So is the big difference here that the world wars were total wars of necessity? They had to be won in order to ensure national survival and the perseverance of democracy. Whereas the wars today, from Iraq through and even before, are wars of choice. And we're just not willing to lay down the lives of our best, our brightest, our youngest, our sons, our mothers, our daughters, our brothers in these conflicts. Is that what this boils down to? And so we're replacing the troops on the ground with high-tech innovations that perhaps still don't deliver victory. Well, I'm not sure what the reason is that we don't seek victory in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's not just one thing. It's that we live in a military alliance world. It's that we have to accommodate 
local governments. It's that the geography of warfare itself has changed. The weaponry has changed. It's that we have an all-volunteer armed forces. I mean, there are so many factors involved. But the one that's clear, even after 9-11, was that the United States population is not willing to absorb large numbers of casualties. And that has been persistent ever since the Vietnam era. And we as historians can talk of Vietnam as if it were yesterday, but let's just remember that most Americans have never even heard of Vietnam or have no memory of it whatsoever. So here's the reality. In October through December of 2001, when the United States was certainly fighting its most emotional and aggressive war in Afghanistan against al-Qaeda, there was still crazy, enormous, oppressive constraints on how many friendly casualties the Pentagon was willing to take. And that made the war more and more technological. There was a short period of time in which a small number of special operators combined with air power were able to have a large effect. But we kind of ignore the fact that we had a proxy army on the ground, the Northern Alliance and the Uzbeks and other groups that were fighting the Taliban directly. So we were really just facilitating their advance from a long stalemate with the use of our air power. But once we had to actually root out Taliban and Al-Qaeda and other elements on the ground, whether that was in Afghanistan and then later in Iraq as we had to root out Ba'athists and Sunni recidivists and Shia activists and Iranian agents, etc. The truth of the matter was that we were just never able to and never willing to put the manpower on the ground that would have made the difference. And even in the surge of 2008, we pretend that the deployment of some 30,000 troops turned the tide, but the truth was that the tide was turned by the fact that we bought off the Western tribes in Iraq and they finally did the dirty work for us. So it's a great question and it certainly is not one that is resolved as to what it is that America or the West, NATO as a whole, what price they're willing to pay in order to actively defend themselves. So let's bring the conversation up to the modern era, the Russian threat. That certainly is the one that NATO is ridiculously focused on. And that puts us into a situation where we are again descending into World War II-like models. The Russians have this many people and we have that many people and they have this many tanks and we have that many tanks and they're X miles from the doorstep in Berlin, and we're going to defend forward in Poland and the Baltic states and Romania and Bulgaria, and somehow that's going to be a deterrent. So we have this weird combination of modern strategies which facilitate smaller militaries with much more potent and lethal capabilities while at the same time adhering to World War II models of front lines and balances of power, if you will, which to me are just, it's no longer relevant. So what are the 
domestic consequences of this? Because, of course, when you've got a large amount of your people, your society, involved in the military complex, either serving on front lines or making munitions in these total wars, then there's a direct and invested interest in why these wars are fought and how they are conducted and how they turn out. But today, with such small forces, are the American people, are the Western publics even interested in the wars that we fight? Well, the answer obviously is no. First of all, we are fighting for the last two decades and hardly musses anyone's hair in the United States or in the NATO countries which are involved in places like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, now in West Africa, and on and on and on. But most importantly, the best marker of the lack of public interest in military affairs and in our wars is that the Army and the Marine Corps have not been able to recruit the sufficient number of recruits, enlistees, for the last three to five years. They have been unable to make their own numbers. Now, here's the numbers. This is what's crazy. The Army and the Marine Corps need about 120,000 18 to 24-year-olds every year, year, to sustain themselves. 120,000 out of a cohort of 20 million 18 to 24-year-olds in the United States. We spend billions of dollars on advertising, on bonuses, on recruitment efforts, etc. And the Army has not been able to make its numbers for the last three to five years. That's how uninterested the American public is in military and military affairs. So that's the first reality. The first reality is that the military has reached a sort of level of perfection, which is to say that they have become an all-volunteer, professional, self-contained, autonomously fighting force. And so they have gotten to this level of perfection, and one of the impacts of it is nobody wants to serve. And that's just proven in the numbers. It's not impugning anybody who wants to join the military. I volunteered and joined the military myself, so I am the product of that world. But I will tell you this, it's completely and utterly changed. And then go to the question of production. In World War II, the U.S. economy was churning out 5,000 planes a month. Today, we are not manufacturing 500 planes a year. So there is nothing about our macroeconomy that depends upon military production anymore. It's not that we don't spend enormous amounts of money for those planes because a $35 million F-35 is almost obscene. However, that one plane can do what a hundred planes of yesteryear can do. It can bomb, it can air defend, it has its own internal intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities, it's part of a broader network, etc. But where the real money goes these days in terms of military spending is in the IT infrastructure that supports it all. And that's 
not production, military production in what we think of when we think of Rosie the Riveter. It's not assembly line production. It's the creation of greater and greater networks with more and more capacity being able to be delivered to people who are farther and farther away from something that has a plug in it. And so really the investments that have taken place in the last decade have been how do you bring internet-like communications to the most remote parts of Somalia and the Afghan-Pakistan border and Niger? How do you get the kind of bandwidth that they require to process the data to those places, what the military calls to the edge, the final mile, if you will. And we have spent billions of dollars to create military compatible networks that can reach to that edge. And that is where the real money is spent. And that is what constitutes our military economy today. The number of tanks we are building per year, the number of ships we are building per year, the number of fighter planes we are building per year, you can count on both your hands and toes. And so the American public and the NATO public is essentially removed from the equation. So no wonder they're not engaged in warfare and no wonder Warfare is so invisible. It's a perfect storm. And that's where we have gotten to by virtue of the technologies that are at our disposal. The landscape of war certainly has transformed so much since 1945. But what does this mean for the future of war? Is this a self-fulfilling prophecy in the fact that you have smaller professional militaries that rely on high technology as a force multiplier and they're ever more detached from the American public which means it's harder to recruit which means you get smaller and smaller militaries and you need more high-tech systems to take the place of people to a point where you have humanless endless wars is that the future that befalls us Bill? Well it's the future that's upon us right now we essentially do have endless wars and, and a reluctance on the part of all politicians from left to right to say, stop. So even though President Biden might decide to reduce the size of the force on the ground in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, you name it, 20 something countries, they're not willing to stop. They're going to keep some residual force of a combination of special operations forces, drones, intelligence, in order to continue the process of targeting, right? I said before that that was the centerpiece of the modern American military. So here's the truth. We don't need those troops on the ground anymore. We really don't. And in fact, when we put those troops on the ground, we just get ourselves into trouble, even fighting against ISIS, one could make the argument that really what was important was a small number of special operators essentially serving as spotters for air power and drones. So the idea then is, well, the United States is going to achieve this fantastic outcome, which is we have no more combat troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., when the reality is the war continues even without them. And that's 
kind of where we already are and that's where we're going. But I don't really hear anybody saying stop fighting altogether. Not in one of those countries. And in fact, in the last decade, from Obama all the way through Trump, we've seen an expansion of the war on terrorism into Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Somalia, Libya. And I don't see those conflicts ending anytime soon. But those conflicts are high-tech targeting efforts that essentially depend upon the collection of intelligence and the use of remote air power in the form mostly of drones of attacking enemy leadership or key leaders or key leader elements. And we used to say we're going after high value targets and then it was key leaders and then it was bomb facilitators and then it was financiers and then it was support networks and now we call them malign networks. We're going to come up with these networks forever because that's what we do well. We collect the intelligence and we map these networks and then we look for where the people are and we go out and we seek to kill them. The real question for the future, James, is whether or not this is actually achieving a result that we can take home as tangible and call it security. And I would argue that here we are, two decades after 9-11, And there's not one country in the Middle East that can say that they're safer today than they were in 2001. Not one. Not one country. So if we haven't created greater security, I don't know what we're doing. Because as we've fought this war against terror, and though we might have decimated Al-Qaeda Central in our 20 years, at the same time we've seen the emergence of Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and ISIS, and undoubtedly there will be generations of new organizations which will replace them as well. And I hate the stupid expression, we're just manufacturing terrorists quicker than we can kill them, but it's sort of true. The problem is that I don't want to be killing terrorists quicker or more efficiently. I want a strategy that is strategic, that allows us to either defeat terrorism or protect ourselves from it. Bill, thank you so much. You truly are America's premier national security expert. Where can people read more about this important issue? Well, I have a book coming out, The Generals Have No Clothes. That's coming out in early 2021. It's the untold story of our endless wars, where I talk of many of these concepts. I have a book on drones that came out a few years ago, Unmanned, and it's about the illusion of perfect warfare that talks about the technological developments that occur. I write for Newsweek pretty regularly on military issues, though hardly ever on these hardware issues. So there in a nutshell is part of the problem, which is that Newsweek couldn't care less about what actually is happening in the wars. They're really only interested in what's happening in Washington. There are great people who are still out there writing about these things. And I've seen a couple of books recently that have come out that are starting to question what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, Sean McFate has a book out and there are a couple of others 
But really this holistic view of our society, the technology of the military, uh, shorn of all of the partisan allegiances of Army versus Air Force, Navy versus Air Force, etc. That holistic literature doesn't exist. And so I say to your listeners, war studies is a wide open field. We need to now understand uh, modern warfare against the backdrop of World War I and World War II and previous wars. But we also need to understand that when we are holding those smartphones in our hands, we are living in a very different world. And this smartphone era that we live in, which has infected the entire U.S. military and intelligence worlds, is the one that we are really challenged by today, not the question of whether or not we can balance a sheet against the Russians or the Chinese in terms of numbers of tanks and numbers of troops. Bill, thank you so much. You're always welcome on The World Wars. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, James. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.